Hello and welcome to The Shindig with Rubicon Heritage and Red River Archaeology. This is part two of our conversation with Dr. Tom Horn about his new book, A Viking Market Kingdom in Ireland and Britain. If you haven't listened to part one, we highly recommend going back to the previous episode. appear archaeologically out with sort of viking sites like were they from what you were saying it sounds like they probably weren't but like the vikings were acquiring them and then they pretty much stopped there so i presume it'd be rare enough to find them certainly in an irish archaeological context or a northern english one you know they weren't making their way down to the main population you know they were being bartered or used for sale low at the local level it would have purely been trade centre, sort of a wealthy, trying to think of the right way of saying that were kind of filtered out, you know, they weren't in wide circulation. Really good question over what's happening, out, out, we'll use our Scottish word of out with, that you know, what, what's happening outside of these these very Scandinavian environments. On the Irish situation, again, John Sheehan is brilliant on this. He looks very specifically at what is happening with the silver that is found, you know, in very much Irish context outside of Dublin in particular. And he looks at how these relate to the different kingdoms operating, um, the Irish kingdoms operating outside Dublin at that time. So they're certainly being used to trade with the, the Irish kingdoms, whether that's for, you know, slaves or, or, or cattle or probably both or there's lots of things that are perishable that we just don't know about but certainly in Ireland they're getting into the into the non-Scandinavian communities in England yeah it's uh, you know what became England is very different they the kingdoms there run essentially there's not just one kingdom of England at that point but the kingdoms there that survived the initial great army shock they have centrally controlled coinages so if and they want tax, and you have to pay your tax in king's coinage. And if you go to an official royal trading centre, which you pretty much will have to do at some point, you have to use the king's coinage. So you can't turn up there with the dirham that you've traded with food to uh, at a great army camp or whatever. They would take that and melt it down and give you some coins back at best. But essentially, they're excluded from the, the Anglo-Saxon or Saxon economy. Um, again, you'd have to read someone like uh, John and, and various other people on what they think the dirhams and, and that sort of silver are being used for in, in Ireland. Um, we know for uh, it's pretty much being certain that, as with the Scandinavians, you know, there's probably a, a big element of these things being melted down into jewellery. But the jewellery is very interesting as well because you get jewellery, essentially, it's fairly undecorated. There's a thing that develops in the Irish Sea that becomes very popular in later Viking Age and Norse, you know, the later period Scotland is a thing called ring money. So, very plain, penannular, so not fully annular, not circular rings. And they become very often are cut up and, and used as their bullion weight. So they're essentially become currency. And we get that in the sagas as well, that you know, people are gifted silver rings and then they, they cut them up and, and use them to pay for things. So there's this display and honor economy, getting gifted things, but then people are using them as money as well. So, yeah, there, there's a lot of literature of, of, of what happens to, to the silver once it gets into Dublin, for sure. And what's happening in, in England is 
yeah, if it gets into the English markets, the English kingdoms, it would have been melted down and turned into coin. Um, there are people now like Jane Kershaw, a friend of mine, various people that are looking at the metallurgical aspect, if that's a word I can say. So they're doing analysis of coins and things that we think are made from the coins. And this has been done in Scotland as well and in Ireland, I would imagine, that you now analyse things like these rings and think, oh, actually, the silver appears to be quite a lot of it we think is coming from dirham sources so it's been used on, on certainly two levels and it certainly would have been brought into irish and as it, for one of a better term english english economies after the scandinavians had, had brought in that's brilliant that's so interesting just to back you up tom can you describe what bullion is what would be a bullion or a mixed bullion economy right a bullion economy is also known as a metal weight economy, which is a bit a bit more descriptive, a bit more useful. But essentially what that is, is you value a currency on two main factors. It's weight, as in weight. Um, it's usually metal, usually precious metal, um, but we can, go, we can go into that a bit more. Um, usually silver, occasionally gold, possibly also copper alloys. But let's say we're talking about Vikings, we're really essentially mainly talking about silver. So if you get silver in, say it's it's a mixture of some cut up arm rings and some dirham coins, and someone gives this to you, you there's no common factor. They're not the same thing. They're not one currency. So what you essentially have to do is go, okay, I'm going to value this to see how much of the commodity I have that I, I want to sell you for these the, this amount of silver. I will wait. And we know this because there's you get bullion that is connected archaeologically to these small portable scales, balances, um, you sort of two little sort of cups with a sort of central connecting band across the top. And just like it, yeah, you weigh one side or other, whatever, and you put, you'll have weights and we know the weights, but there's certain types of weights. They're very small weights that seem to be designed and there are thousands of them across the Viking world that seem connected to weighing very small amounts of things. And we think almost certainly as far we know as much as you can say we know anything that these coin these specific weights these very uh, specialized weights are used to weigh and the other the other scale pan are used to wear these cut up bits of mainly silver so when you're talking about a billion economy that's essentially this action of you have your bits of silver that are not they're all from disparate sources and you want to buy something and you give what you think is a right amount of your silver and you give it to that the trader, the merchant at their stall, and they put the silver on one side, and then they put their weights on the other side, and they go, oh, okay, I value this as that. But what they might do at that point is they might also test the silver. So you get archaeologically very interesting. You get little nick marks and scratches on it, and that's to test the you know the hardness of the silver or whatever metal you're testing. And it's also to see if it's just been, if you're being defrauded, if it's like silver or it's plated on, on a base metal. So you get these things called nicks and essentially get the little pock marks that are taken out of them as well. So that's the two factors that you're interested in, the weight and the quality. And if you as a merchant are happy with that, then yeah, you can sell the bit of cloth or whatever, the dried fish, you can sell it to the, the person that's giving you that silver. So that's what a bullion economy is. And you have to look at bullion economies, which are operating in a world, particularly if you're a Scandinavian in, in England in the, the ninth century, 
and 10th century, you'll be operating alongside coined economies. So these are economies that are, as we understood, you remember cash, remember like five years ago, cash was a thing. Um, that was when, you know, someone would, you could literally go, here are four pound coins, that is worth four pounds. It's got the whatever symbol of government on it. Uh, it's not got precious metal in it, but it's, it's a guarantor of value. You can count those four coins and that's four pounds. And essentially that's what you've got in the, say, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms that are surrounding so you've got these two systems so you have a thing like a dual economy which you refer to in your question as well where the scandinavians again they're very horses for courses sort of uh, people they will if they're trading in one of these english markets they will know that they will lose a lot in the bureau de chance as a, for one of a better word if they change their hacked up bits of silver for the royal coin so they may have their own english coin and they use that when they go to these markets but when they're back in the camp or when they're living in their own communities, they will probably use the bullion as much as people will use silver. Because I, mean, I think the overriding thing is there's not as much silver and precious metal flying around. We think it's not necessarily as everyday as we think it is. And even a small lump of silver or gold, as Jane Kerr would say, is still worth a, quite a lot of money. But essentially, that's what's happening. You've got, you've, you know, in England, you've certainly got the option um, to use one or both of these of these systems. And you know, they do the same thing. You give some of your precious metal and you get the thing that, that, that you want back for it. Jonsky, I, I feel like I've been like asking the majority of the questions. Do you do you have anything? You've been taking like such excellent notes. So I, I just feel like I've learned so much this morning so far. Um, I'm trying to think if I've got any. I've, I've been kind of, yeah, I've been taking a lot of notes, but I, nothing's kind of like let out as being like, you're just, you're explaining it um, very clearly. And it's something that I didn't, I didn't know. Like the idea of the significance of the UK being a dual economy and having to have, or not having to have, but obviously being beneficial to have some of the coinage and their own kind of metal and just use whatever was going to be the most most appropriate. That's really interesting. I think that's it. I think, again, the whole thing about this market networking and things like that is just they're going with the most efficient, best way of doing things. And you see that in, in the way that they use currency as well. You you take what works and you use that. I think as a people, they don't really see the need to reinvent the wheel. They go with what works. And they're that's pragmatic why I think businessmen. That, yeah, that explains how they, you know, they 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 prosper because you know I think we call it today best practice, you know, copying. I I sound like a terrible sort of management speak being best practice and least cost path and stuff like that. But these are just modern labels for what is happening there, I think. Well, the Vikings are the first capitalists, you know? <laughs> the first venture, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, think, I think, too, like Chris, Chris Goyman's done a lot of research about the Vikings in Francia, and he's written his own book, Monarchs and Hydrarchs, and talks a bit about hydrarchy, which fits also into this idea of a Viking market kingdom i think that they're not mutually exclusive and simon copeland has put together a database of or not a database but a list of all the carolingian hordes and i think only four of them include durham's four or five so it's actually really fascinating that you do see when you map them when you see like kilger um in 2008 map them for degvin's gray's cowpong monograph that the durham hordes really hang out in the Baltic and Scandinavia, but they don't cross into Germany or Francia. Like they just don't, it's almost like a curtain effect where it does seem to be once the Vikings bring these Durham's into Francia or whoever brings them into Francia, they are melted down and effectively turned into to Frankish currency. It's, it's actually fascinating. Yeah, I, I, I think I think that's it. It's different 
uh, just to go back briefly, Christian's work is very important for my work as well because he sees a sort of a plan of what they what they want to do. It's not completely ad hoc. It looks like they have a model of what they how they want to achieve their their aims in in Francia, and it's interesting to go on from that to what you say about Kilgore's brilliant work as well and Kaupang and the Kaupang Research Project, which were very helpful with me in providing images as well. Um, they're really excellent. But you know, their their work on distribution, Kilgore's work on distribution of, of Deerham's is and Simon's work is is vital as well because it really shows the the areas in which the Scandinavians kind of do well and they could seem to do less well and not well in certain areas you know they, they might do militarily quite well but they they don't establish this sort of markets that they clearly would quite like to establish you know they for example the the, the carolingians buy them off with normandy and say okay you keep control essentially of the channel approaches um that's actually and... that's actually a question i have would you see some place like rouen or dorestad as being a viking market kingdom if someone wants to do that research, yeah, go for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wouldn't know, but certainly, I and mean, that that was that's the kind of thing I would I would check out, see see what is trying to be attempted there by various Scandinavian elements. It certainly would fit the model of nodal markets and connecting them and leading up towards southern Scandinavia and the Baltic. So you've got all those elements. You've got you know the connection to the sort of wealthy, more centralised kingdoms in Francia and in England as well, and and the Irish kingdoms too. You you've got sort of wealthy sort of kingdoms around you, but you control or you have a strong influence on a trading centre that's on these you know these sort of liminal spaces, which all trading centres are to an extent, because even if they're like Birka, they're solidly within territory of a particular kingdom. There's only a point in having it if they're very open access again to use another term that people can use them very easily because you want to get as many people in as possible with the biggest range of goods as possible to get essentially to get the tools and the taxes to make money out of it yeah whatever's happening in that part of the world christian others are i'm sure far more advanced in in, in that sort of area than i am but it would certainly be an area of which will be very interesting i think now and now and in the future how long did these Viking market kingdoms last. Like we have talked about how Dublin was founded in the 840s and York was taken over in the 860s and lost and won again. And I know that the we haven't have we talked about the the Uiver. No, um, haven't we? Haven't specifically? No, we haven't yet. And I, I mean, I don't know this this for recording, but um, my mate Stephen Harrison, uh, proper Dubliner, he said it was like I can't remember now, but in my mind it was like. Uhiver, Uhiver, or something like that that you, you pronounce it, but I just don't know. And I, I used for years, I was like Ui Emir. <laughs> so I don't want to like offend everybody by getting it horrendously wrong, and I don't want to put Stephen in it by misremembering what he told me what it is accurately many years ago. So I guess what we can say is one of the founding dynasties of Dublin come from a character in the Irish annals called Ivar Ivar. And he does have a dynasty that we are going to butcher. That's essentially the O Ivers. The, the McIvers. You the know, McIvers, the, yeah. The, the, the Iversons or, or whatever. Yeah, the descendants of, of Ivar. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you've mentioned them briefly, especially kind of directing us toward Claire Downham. But what would be your theory on the Iversons? Yeah, I think the way I look at it is the Ivar... And uh, Olaf, who seemed connected in this period, whether they're 
you know, there's speculation again in the book whether people talk about whether they're blood brothers or I don't know if it's Dirk Steinforth, whoever um, talks about whether they're you know they're brothers in a in a in a in a you know war band sense, you know, like uh, you know either brothers way. in arms, yeah, 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 exactly. And I think they are probably from my guess would be southern Scandinavia, based on what happens afterwards in terms of the kingdom that. They seem to be connected with developing. They could be some somewhere like Kaupang, you know, so sort of Norwegians, but within a sort of Danish kingdom at that stage. And I think they try their luck in Dublin in the 850s or so, or maybe their their forebears do, their fathers and grandfathers or whoever, cousins. And then after that point, um, I think the the Ivar and the Irish Annals and the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle are the same ones, and there's lots of there's lots of debate about it, and there'll always be lots of debate about that. But I think everything kind of makes more sense if you basically got this figure or Ivar and Olaf who are, who are the same figure. Um, and if you look at 817, the siege of Dumbarton with the Alt Clute Britons, which become eventually are are, are are kicked out of there after the siege in in 870, and that involves we know elements from Dublin because the annals talk about them taking 200 loads of essentially loot uh, and slaves back to Dublin. But if Olaf is there as well, and you know their connections to, to the Great Army, there's Great Army elements there too. So there appears to be this coordination within the people and within the groups. Potentially it's happening somewhere like Dumbarton in, in, in 870. And again, that would make sense if you're coordinating activities, because if you take Dumbarton, then you can control of the Strath, you know, the Valley of the Clyde, and you can control the River Leaven at that point, which takes you up to Loch Lomond. And we know from the work of Gavin McGregor and Colleen Beatty, we know the there were Viking Age burials and settlements on, on the west bank of Loch Lomond, for example. So we know, again, interesting in these routeways, interested in the Clyde for obvious reasons, and they appear to be coordinating up from, again, the great armies of Danelaw, as would become known, Northern England and Dublin, and there's connection around that point. So I think there's coordination, whether they're brothers in a biological sense or not. And then I think after this point that that sets what they want to do. They want to control Northern England and you want to control the, want to control the greatest uh, trading centre in Northern England, being York, which faces east and across the North Sea, although it's quite a dangerous sea, so you might go down towards East Anglia and then go across again to the Low Countries and then, and then go up to Scandinavia that way. And then you've got, you've got Dublin as well. So you've got these two centres that you can coordinate militarily as they do at places like Dumbarton. But then also you've got that link open that you can use as communications and I think most importantly a, a trade routes and I think that's what the descendants of Ivar I think that's what they're doing they're like okay this is what our parents generation and our grandparents generation perhaps did you keep these two centers you know the the caput the um, the caput whatever of the dynasties is in Dublin and the cadet branch will go out to York or you know, occasionally vice versa and then you control that route um, so you've got the Irish market, you've got the market in the island of Britain, and then you've got the connections into Scandinavia from the east, the east coast of Britain through that. So, And that appears to be from, again, at least from the late 860s until the mid 950s, that appears to be this sort of pattern that repeats, you know, you, if you lose one, you have to take it back because the logic of this network in the market kingdom is that you you have both and you can combine commercially and and, and, and militarily as well 
it's brilliant. It's so, so interesting. You say to the 950s, but how long did the Viking market kingdom last? Was it, did it progress beyond that? Or was that literally, did it just transmute into something else after the conquest or other factors? You know, I, I think the way to look at these Scandinavian Viking Age networks is very much like, you know, look at the Gotlanders. This would have been essentially the, the facilities, as it were, the sites, the markets are, are established by a family or a royal family. But what actually makes these uh, networks networks are these essentially independent traders and you know probably villages of traders or families of, of traders and that's certainly what you seem to get in, in places like Gotland and from that you can sort of transpose that and say that's probably roughly what's happening elsewhere the problem with networks is that Soren would tell you is that they're very vulnerable to a collapse of a, of a node is so if when essentially in the 950s when Eric is the sort of king there is killed in 954 that basically becomes part of the British Anglo-Saxon whatever we want to say it world Dublin will then continue but after that point it's maybe more connected to to markets in, in continental Europe and into Iceland and then it's connected to Britain still but it's connected to places like you know Bristol and Chester it's it's such such a big this sort of this newly unified English kingdom is where the money is. Again, if we're talking about horses for courses, more sufficient. If you're making more money more easily a shorter distance, you don't care if you're if it's with cousins in 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 Jorvik or complete strangers in Bristol or whatever. You make your money that way. So I think essentially as as this it's a short it's a phenomenon of this market kingdom is probably again only from you know eight fifties to nine fifties. And there are big there'll be gaps in that as well, obviously with in terms of the political control with the expulsion from Dublin 902 to 917, I think, and the various Anglo-Saxon takeovers of, of Northumbria and, and York in that period as well, Athelstan obviously being a notable one as well. So I think as a phenomenon, it is quite tightly bookended by their, you know, nine, early 950s into the, in, sorry, 850s into the, the, the 960s. But you're someone like Jane Kershaw will, will show that places like Cotton and there, there are various places in the north of England where the bullion economy, which is obviously distinctively Scandinavian, that is continuing on a bit longer than that. But yeah, you know, eventually, of course, horses for courses, you just go with what's the, the, the best system, the way that we've all gone from cash to cashless very easily because it's it's the easiest way to do it. I think that's that's what's happening. It just things evolve and they go for essentially they get interested in new, more efficient markets as well. Um the silver supply is changing as well through it's being essentially ending in the second half of the 10th century, the, the silver that's coming, you know, in terms of dirhams, and then it, the silver is coming essentially more from European sources at that at that point. So the world, the group the wider world is changing and, and the local the context and the regional context is changing so it's no longer relevant it's no longer advantageous to have that network kingdom set up after that point it is that around 920 9, 950s it does seem to be split into the early viking age and the later viking age and so the end of these market kingdoms we do seem to move into this later viking age is that correct yeah you're getting I think that second, yeah, from that, that second half of the 10th century, 950 to 1000, the world is, I think the world in 950 and the world in 900, if you're Scandinavian and Britain or Ireland, is, you could understand that both and say, okay, there's changes, but, you know, I, I roughly, I can operate in here. I think between 900 and 1000, it'd be very different. And even between 950 and 1000, still quite different again 
and the world is changing. Kingdoms are becoming more sort of unified in, in Scandinavia as well as we know. They're becoming very strongly sort of Christian and sort of centered on there's no longer, for example, Birka, uh, example, you know, you get successor markets, which are very much more, you know, based on royal centralized control and they'll have bishops in them. And they're very much more of that, you know, later medieval sort of period. So the world is changing internally in Scandinavia uh, as well. So fashions and change i think you know in politics and, and, and polities as 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 much as as we're seeing the the change of what the commodities and the the currencies that the, were available in terms of the silver supply in the direction of, of silver supply so the logic that made it logical as it were to to set up these kingdoms and to copy them no longer applied you know essentially from from the second half of the, the 10th century I can hear I can hear my voice beginning to sort of gravel off of it. <laughs> well, we, we, we will move in, we'll move into the quick fire round and kind of round things up. But is there anything else you wanted to add about your book or anything you feel like we missed? It's just it sounds like you know award ceremony, but you know, it's just to to thank, you know, you and everyone. I you know, I've 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 hopefully thanked everyone in my acknowledgments, but Neil and Charlotte and, and Ben as as the editors and, and Routledge and all the various people involved and the many, many processes of that were just so kind i think you've got to be clear about these things that you know it's, it's not tough manual labor and there are lots of harder jobs but it's you know it's still mentally very tough thing to do so you need you need a support network of of, of friends and you know your your colleagues and people that are supporting the project and you know so many people are kind to to give up their their time and and research and images and yeah just but it's yeah that i think that's it it's it's, it's such a rewarding process and rightly were great and it's but it's just very it's, it's very difficult and people there that are doing research at the moment whether it's uh, from school project to undergraduate to master PhD or writing a book it is tough and you know ask ask people for help and say that you know you're finding it difficult whether it's research or just the pressure of delivering and and it won't be perfect in the end I mean even doing research for this I, I noticed a, a typo or two <laughs> in that and you know you can't you you can't get everything but you know you're these things are so vast that we're all human and you just do what you can but just get the right people around you and you'll find that people are very kind and, and supportive so uh, yeah just just thank you thank you to, to everyone involved really okay so let's move into quick fire round Tom what has been your favorite excavation that you've been on um, I think when we were discussing this before, I said it's like, you know, if someone with kids, which I don't have, uh, would say it's like picking a favorite child. I mean, they probably know which is their favorite child, but they wouldn't say. And it's, like, or it's like picking my best, my best friend. It's kind of, it's, it's, it's really difficult. What I will say is that I think I go to digs 50% is is the archaeology but you know 50 percent is just the people because and i recommend it to people it's great for mental health it's great for exercise that you get get on a dig go to your local society and and, and ask to get involved once once it's safe to do so because it's the people and the camaraderie you'll meet people and you'll work with them for a week two weeks a month and your friends for the rest of your life and every dig i've been on i've made i've made friends for life so people like yourself naya that that's 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 you know it can't Jane and all the people I've worked with just you know because I was a Roman archaeologist back in the day as well and you know, you're you know it's just you know the, the people are the, the people are great and you have the shared experience and you get all the end jokes um so I think all digs have been have been great because you've always made very good very good friends with them so what has been your favorite Gosh, when we did this with Enda, he got very semantic about it. He picked you up on it, didn't he? I, 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 I wouldn't did. notice. I know. Now I'm like having a panic attack. 
So what has been your favorite, okay, what has been your favorite find that you have found yourself? And then oh. as a follow-up, what is your favorite artifact that exists? Oh, artifacts, this is a new one. I will buy time by by just by by just saying what I just said. Um the favorite thing I've found, um I did think along about this because everyone, you know, every dig you'll find something that's like, oh, that's pretty cool. Although there are certain digs where you know, like it repped and everyone else is finding really, really cool stuff. Uh, <laughs> I had a gold pen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you're like, oh. <laughs> and everyone's like, great, well done. <laughs> we're so happy for you. <laughs> I was, I was, ex- I was excavating next to Tom. Like we were like, you know, like on our knees next to each other, and I think, I think we were racing backwards towards where the metal detectors had stuck a flag. And I had kind of like excavated for this back and I was like excavating really, really quickly and out popped a gold pin. And I was like, <laughs> yes, I well, I mean, professionalism really, I was just going at the, the pace of the archaeology that was beneath the trowel, really, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, on that dig, I mean, actually, for talking about Viking Age thing, I've got I've got another um, specific find, but of of on that on that dig in, in Repton, you know, the great the great army site there that we were digging. Tanaya found like a postal and it was the first postal that had been you know found since the great digs of the, the 70s and 80s or just the 80s or, the 80s um, we found it together Tom uh no I wouldn't have seen it <laughs> and I don't and it was certainly uh, you found it and then from that you know the brilliant thing about archaeology is or it's the equally cursed and blessed is that you will as soon as someone finds a thing everybody is just like looking for that thing and and luckily because I found that postal something I would have just thought there's a clump of stones, well, that's, you know, there's a clump of stones, okay, there's there's lots of stones in the ground, but then I thought, oh, maybe it's another postal, and because of that, I excavated that, you know, in in, in, in the right manner, and we found essentially two postals, so pretty much, well, anything, two things are in the line, aren't they, really, so um, <laughs> whether it's not, we'll, hopefully when we go back, but, you know, uh, you know that, that that was a very cool find, to find something like a postal. I mean, it's a bit, bit like, you know, archaeologists like, well, you know, it's not really the coins, really. It's it's the postholes. It's the more ephemeral stuff that you're really interested in. But that that, that was a cool find, thinking about it in, in terms of Viking Age site. Um, you know, I've done, you know, I've got Roman stuff and I've done through a friend, Terence Christian's work. He, he did Second World War American built aircraft crashes. So they might have been RAS server, so they might have been U.S. Army Air Force, but the Roman one is easy in my first dig in Italy. Um, I found a bit of painted wall plaster in an upsidal room off a off a villa, and you're like going, yeah, that's you know, that's basically that's it. That's you know, if I don't find anything else for the rest of my life, I found a bit of painted wall plaster. And the other the other one as well. I mean, because what I do is generally all this sort of you know big again to use modern jazz as macro stuff. It's big overviews of things. But the one of the digs we did, and again involved metal textures because it was signal door aircraft that had, that had very sadly crashed um in scotland i won't reveal because obviously people are still still around that will be connected to the families involved in that and but yeah i know so we, we use metal detectors obviously because i mean these things are millions like a million pieces when they're whole so when 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 they when they crash they there's you know, it's obviously multiple times that and um we were just looking and we're very inhospitable place and i looked under a sort of rock because something had sort of caught my eye and the thing that I caught my eye was actually just a stone but just beyond that was a piece of metal which turned out to be the harness for a parachute and you know just 
that sort of thing was very much affecting as a find because you were like, okay, that was connected to somebody and it was a safety device on an aircraft, but because they crashed into 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 land, you know, you know, in, in bad conditions, they wouldn't have had a chance to use it. So you were just suddenly very connected to this at very young people that were sort of doing these horrible things not that long ago that might have still been alive when we were doing these excavations and things like that and uh, so yeah I think I think you know I deal my making stuff and that's all very sort of on a much wider perspective but um, occasionally it's just to, to see something that you sort of think okay that connects you very closely to a particular a particular person uh, in the past so I think yeah I mean, I've answered your questions and again, very long-windedly, but there are, there, there are lots of favourites and lots of things that mean things in, in, in a different way. So yeah, that's, it's, yeah, it's not a very quick answer, but there we go. <laughs> no, but that's okay. Because I think, I think what a lot of people don't always understand about archaeology is how moving it is to feel directly connected to the past. And I feel that you are kind of evoking that talking about this, mm-hmm. which is that sometimes when you dig something up, you know, when we found the post holes, plural, it was suddenly, it became less of a a site and more of a former home or, or place of living. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine, yeah, you, you know, what, you know, what you're excavating is somebody's less, they put a, a shovel into the ground at that point. It's, you know, yeah, it's, it's an action, you know, it's evidence of a, of a very particular action in a very particular moment in time. So I think, yeah, that's, that sort of really sort of brings you, brings you sort of back, back to things. So yeah, yeah, I agreed. With that in mind, what's your funniest moment in the trenches? Again, uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, half the Top time, <laughs> yeah, to, yeah, to, <laughs> Niles know that I'll just start singing or in a trench like that whether that's funny or, or, or tragic I don't know um, but you know there was one uh, again going back to back to Dig and Italy, I, I wouldn't say any of the more recent ones because you know probably people will <laughs> they'll be able to identify themselves but um, uh, we were on a we were on a Roman site and we went off to a sort of site uh, in a field about a mile away and it was the classic they'd done the sort of you know field walking surveys and they've done sort of various remote sensing surveys and they wanted to say you know this valley or whatever is full of you know roman sites we know this it's italy fine this field should have nothing in it and we just want to do a test pit in it to um to establish that so essentially we were there to not find anything and you know they said a pal and i probably just to get rid of us and our sort of professor and you know we were good pals so we were just having fun in this beautiful field miles away from anyone in, in Italy it was all very nice and we're sort of we're sort of digging away and digging away and as usual I mean this, you know it's soil in Roman Italy it's full of you know it's full of ceramics and pottery and stuff like that so you're like oh there's a nice bit of pottery oh there's a nice bit of pottery and then you know you, you sort of got to where we eventually had to stop and it was kind of like um and I'd been on this previous site and I was like, I, I, they have this thing called cultural pestle flooring, which is very rough, sort of maybe inside of a barn or a courtyard surface that you just sort of mash in bits of, you know, CBM, you know, ceramic building material, which would be tile or brick and, you know, ceramics and just whatever's to hand just to get a sort of, you know, dry-ish, dryable sort of surface for animals and farm work and stuff like that. And I was just like, because you're scraping away and sort of picking up these bits of ceramic and things like that and, and, and CBM. And, and after a while, you're kind of like, 
they all seem to be very like like together. <laughs> like, and we're sort of like, and then you sort of and I was like to the professor, it's like, is this one of these like these cochopestal sort of floors? Possibly. I'm not really thinking. I was just like going, something weird is happening, and something that we're literally there not to find anything. And he was just like stopped and went, Oh, you know. <laughs> get out <laughs> so we all sort of leapt out and we got like the really good archaeologist on the main site <laughs> he was a student at the time but he was he was like the guy that we all knew was the best by far so we kind of like just stood literally stood back and um and we got this guy to come over and he kind of looked in and was like yeah no that's very obviously a thing and then he was looking at our spoil wheat, which you should never do as an archaeologist because there's always stuff there that you've missed and then someone else's fresh eyes looks on it. But to be honest, we should have probably spotted that there was this massive piece of, you'll get it in a place like Pompeii, you've got these things called dolia, which are these big ceramics of food containers that you'll get them in the food outlets and in places like Pompeii, so massive things. And uh, the, the good archaeologist, as you shall call him, came, uh, came over and picked up what now you could see was obviously a massive piece shard <laughs> of one of these that had obviously been placed, you know, carefully placed in this, this cochopesto rough flooring, you know, um, to even it out. And we were like, oh, yeah, that's obviously a thing. And then he was like, you guys notice that there's like markings on it as well we were like no <laughs> we, did <not. laughs> we did not notice that either <laughs> so we'd missed like I said, we nearly missed basically the thing we were ultimately to be fair it's not meant to find but then we were basically spent the last five minutes before we stopped hoiking out like large identifiable bits of archaeology um, that actually had, this one had like a volume inscription on it for whatever it had contained and stuff like yeah. that. So really cool. And uh, yeah, we were just like tossed it into the spoil. <laughs> so yeah, there's there's a lesson that whenever you think you won't find something, you, you, you probably will. And just before you invite a good, you know, capital letters, good archaeologist over, just just you know, check check your spoil heap. <laughs> <laughs> good advice. <laughs> Thank you. That's guys. So then, final question: Which site, and it can be a current site, it can be a lost site. What What would you most like to excavate? Uh, I mean, a great question. I think if there was a you know, I've thought about this even overnight. And I think if there was a, a maybe a great army site in southern Scotland, I mean, something like that would really be because I think it would just change archaeology, the way people perceive archaeology, um, and certainly the Viking Age. That it's in, in Scotland, it's, it's the islands and, and the coasts, but. There, there's the, the stuff that's going on in England in the 860s and 870s, which we know historically is happening in Scotland, but we, you know, we're, we're getting archaeological evidence for it. And then all I would need within that site is to find a dirham and a, and a, and a, gaming, and a gaming piece from Hanafertafel, which is another thing I probably um, totally destroyed the pronunciation of, but you know, a gaming piece and, and a dirham. I don't want much in life, but a great army site in Scotland with, with those two things would probably be all right. I would, I would take that. Tom, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. You know, real education. I've multiplied my knowledge of Vikings by a, a, a huge amount. It's been brilliant. Thank you. I've I've really enjoyed it. It's you know the, the time is it's just it's gone so quickly, and 
you know, as we were discussing before recording, it's like that's that's where we wanted to be. It's just like some pals, um, you know, just just chatting away. Thank you.